The following audio is for Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. He's kind of a Christian pollster. Uh, he worked together with Gallup polls, and they surveyed the American people to try to determine what they really knew about their Bibles, that is, biblical literacy, and was that changing in America. What they discovered is that uh, the average American could not name five of the Ten Commandments. They could name no more than four of the Twelve Apostles. They could not name the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They thought that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife, that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife, and that there was a real verse in the Bible that said, God helps those who help themselves. Um, All of that would be really, really funny if it weren't true. The problem is that we live in a day and age in which people don't really read their Bibles. And so it was when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. What had happened in ancient Israel 2,000 years ago is that the rabbis who taught the Scriptures, they had been writing commentaries. They had been writing interpretations of the Scriptures. And so the rabbis stopped reading God's Word, and they just started reading and teaching their own interpretation of God's Word. And as time went on, the interpretations got farther and farther removed from what God actually gave in the revelation, the inspiration of what we today call Old Testament Scriptures. And so Jesus is preaching a sermon unlike any sermon that the crowds had ever heard before. He starts by talking about happiness and how happiness is connected to and knowing the blessing of God. And those of us who have received the blessing of God, who are, th- are then supposed to be conduits of the blessing of God, we become salt in a savorless world. We become light in a dark world. And then Jesus astounds everyone who's listening to the sermon when he says, I did not come to negate the law. I didn't come to set the law aside. I actually came to fulfill the law. And and the people had heard the law through the teaching of the rabbis and the Pharisees, and they thought, how can that be? Because the law doesn't make sense, and no one can live by it, and it's, it's, got, too many, uh, it's got too many boundaries, and it's got too many limitations. And so Jesus stops here in the sermon. He doesn't really stop, but there's a, there's a part of the sermon that if you look at it, he gives us six illustrations. He gives us uh, six uh, different parts of the law in which he really helps redefine what that looks like. Hey, guys in the sound booth, can I get the confidence monitor? That would help me a lot. Thanks. So, so the first thing he does is he does this in order to demonstrate the purpose of the law that he came to fulfill. And his six illustrations are going to show us the difference between a merely outward pretense of righteousness, 
And, and that's what the Pharisees had. They just, it was all outward. It was all fake. It was all religiosity. It was all hip, uh, hypocrisy. And it was kind of like, uh, look at me. Isn't God lucky to have me on his team? That was this outward pretense of, of righteousness. And the second thing he does in these six illustrations is he shows that a true inward righteousness only comes by faith. That is that you don't have it of your own making. None of us have righteousness of our own. Romans says, there's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So the righteousness that we have, we have because Jesus gave it to us. And this is what happened at the cross. Never, never forget this. Jesus took your sin and he gave you his righteousness. We usually only talk about the first half of that. We love the fact, and and we should love the fact, that Jesus took our sin. Amen? But he did more than that. He not only took your sin, but he gave you his righteousness. And so this is what we discover in these six illustrations. Now, it's a big chunk of uh, Scripture, so we're just going to read some parts of it. We're going to kind of read it pretty fast, and then we're going to go back and look at what is Jesus teaching in in each of these six illustrations, okay? So you've got chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, by the way, when Gallup and uh, Barna uh, uh, interviewed people, they surveyed them, the people also said that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. So this morning, I want you to know Jesus preached this sermon. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In the middle of this sermon, six illustrations to prove to us righteousness isn't merely outward. It's inward, and it comes by faith. Here's illustration number one in verse 21, Matthew 5, 21. You've heard it said, and he's talking about the interpretations of Old Testament. You've heard it said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you, now stop just for a second. How is it that Jesus can set aside the interpretations of the Pharisees for the last at least 400 years before he preaches this sermon? How can he set that aside and say, but I say to you? It's because Jesus was the one who gave the law to Moses. Are you with me? When Moses says to God in the burning bush, well, if I go to Israel and Egypt and they ask me who you are, what shall I say? And it's Jesus who says, I am that I am. Do you understand that Jesus preexisted his birth in Bethlehem? When, uh, when God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden, that was Jesus. When God appeared to Abraham and said, this time next year you're going to have a son, that was Jesus. When God spoke to uh, Moses, that was Jesus. So Jesus, how can Jesus say, but I say to you about the law? Because Jesus is the lawgiver. He's the one who gave the law. He knows exactly what it means. So we're going to find that six times. So I just call your attention to it the first time. So he says in verse 21, or verse 22, but I say to you, everyone who's even angry with his brother, he's talking about murder, But he says, anyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable of hell fire. That's illustration number one. 
Illustration number two, verse 27. We're going to read them all, then we'll go back and look at them. Verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's illustration number two. Illustration number three, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that's the third illustration. Illustration number four, verse 33. Again, you've heard it said by those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But, but I say to you, Don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's the throne of God, or by earth, because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. Don't take an oath by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black, for you cannot, uh, verse 37, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this is evil. Illustration number five. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. He goes on and he says, someone slaps you in the right cheek, turn the other also. If anyone sues you for your tunic, give him your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two. And the sixth illustration, you've heard it said, verse 43, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, there's no, there's no place in the Old Testament that says, hate your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. But the Pharisees had written interpretations of what that means. And so if it says, love your neighbor, then the antithesis is, hate your enemy. So they had come to the wrong conclusion again. So he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So there they are, the six illustrations. Let's look at them one by one, let's look at them and see what is it that Jesus is trying to illustrate. What is he doing? He's taking a piece of the Old Testament law given by Moses to the people, and the people had come to the wrong conclusion. They had come to the conclusion, as long as I don't murder, and as long as I don't commit adultery, look at my righteousness. And so, having come to that false uh, self righteousness, that self-piety, Jesus exposes it all with these six illustrations. Here's illustration number one. Murder, as Jesus begins to talk about it in the Sermon on the Mount, murder illustrates the selfishness of our anger and our unwillingness to forgive those who have hurt us. You see, uh, unless you're mentally ill, You don't just wake up in the morning and go, I think I'm going to murder my neighbor today. What happens to us is we we grow in the fostering of anger and we grow in the bitterness of unforgiveness. Now, we all have it at some some light levels. Like in your house, uh, there's that moment of unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart when your wife will not share the remote control. Uh, there's, that, there's that slight anger when you're cut off in the roundabout. There's, the, uh, there's that anger that wells up in you when you reach into the fridge for the orange juice and you realize somebody put it back empty. Now, 
those are, those are the silly things. Then there's kind of the medium set of things that make us a little more angry. It has to do with our boss. It has to do with those that we supervise or our employees. It has to do with uh, our neighbor. It has to do with uh, the ex. And so those things, well, they get us riled up a little more. And then there's the big things, the things you're like, I'm, I'm going to sue that guy. Or I'll never, ever forgive that guy. And so what happens is we just begin to believe that it's my right to be angry and I'm going to be angry. And we actually think I'm not going to let that guy off the hook. We think that our unforgiveness hurts him. And by the way, it only hurts you. But the fostering of that anger that's what produces something where you could actually say, I'd like to kill that guy. Now, maybe you never commit murder, but Jesus is pointing out the fact that you've already done it in your heart. And so he uses murder as the illustration of how anger grows and grows and grows and bitterness grows and grows and grows. And so so righteousness isn't just, hey, I've never committed murder. I think I'm going to heaven. That's not what righteousness is. Murder shows that I would have probably done it if I thought I could have got away with it. I remember when I got old enough to understand things. You know, when you're little, you grow up, you have a mom and a dad, and they're just your mom and dad. But as I got older, I began to realize, no, they're a married couple, and I saw them differently. And so one day, I said to my mom, because I realized some things about my dad, I said, Mom, did, did you ever consider divorce? And my mom was, uh, she was washing dishes or something, and she never even looked up. She didn't blink, and she said, nope, not once. She said, I never con- considered divorce. Then she stopped, and she said, murder, I thought about What's Jesus illustrating? That all have fallen short of the glory of God. He's illustrating that I have, a, I have a broken mechanism in my soul that causes me to sin and harbor hate and anger and terrible thoughts, and he's equating that to murder. Illustration number two is adultery. In illustration number two, Jesus uses adultery to illustrate the selfishness of our lust and our unwillingness to deny our appetites for gratification. Uh, You and I live in a land of plenty. We live in a land that's got so very much. Uh, any, any of you ever see the, the movie The Tip of the Spear or Through Gates of Splendor, the story of the missionaries that went to the Aka Indians in South America? And uh, the, these five men were uh, killed by the Aka Indians. And then later, their wives moved into the village and the whole village received the gospel of Christ. Well, a generation later, one of the sons uh, of Nate Saint, who was murdered there by the village, he brought the, the village pastor to America. And he brought him to America, and they traveled everywhere speaking about the gospel of Christ and how it changes lives and how this, this entire village had been saved because of the sacrifice of these men. Well, when they went back to this, uh, this tribe, the, this guy who had now been to America was telling them all about America. And this is what he said. He said, they don't even have to 
go and forage or hunt for food. They, you just drive up to this building, they open a window, and they give you food. We kind of do live in a land of prosperity, don't we? And because we live in this land where so many of our appetites can be gratified, we start to not deny ourselves of anything. And so whether it's food or drink or TV or social media or the Internet or sex, the lusts of our hearts start to consume us and we don't deny ourselves. We give in to that and we gratify it and we gratify it and we gratify it. You know the problem with an appetite is that it's never full. You see, our mothers used to lie to us when we were kids. My mom would say to me, like, I'd be eating snacks before dinner and she'd say, be careful, you're going to ruin your appetite. Do you know what I figured out? You never ruin that thing. Yeah, you might get full for now, but guess what? You're going to get another appetite later. Uh, How many of you have eaten so much at a Thanksgiving meal that you had to unbutton your pants? Don't raise your hands. You had to unbutton your pants, and you were like, oh, I'm so full. And an hour later, you found yourself back just saying, I'll have a little snack. The problem is if you give in to gratify your sinful appetites, they just will keep you coming back for more and more and more. And so Jesus uses adultery to paint the picture, to illustrate that we have sinful hearts that always want to be gratified. I want what I want, and I want it now. And Jesus is exposing the depravity of our hearts in that illustration. Illustration number three is divorce. And uh, let me stop and say this because I, I, I want to be... I want you to hear what I have to say. This particular passage is not the full biblical uh, uh, teaching on divorce. This is just one little part of it. If you would like the full teaching on divorce today at the Believer's Hub, you can get my whole teaching, which is about an hour and a half. You can get every single scripture in the Bible that talks about divorce. In this passage, just so you know, Jesus is talking about a particular kind of divorce that was basically wife swapping. Here's what the Pharisees would do. Because the Pharisees didn't want to break the law of Moses and commit adultery, two Pharisees would get together and say, hey, I've got an idea. I'll divorce my wife this weekend and you divorce yours. And then I'll marry your wife and you marry mine. I'll have your wife for the weekend and you have mine. And then on Monday, we'll divorce him and we'll get our wives back again. And they presumed, because they were having a legal divorce and a legal marriage, that it wasn't adultery. It was just a loophole that the Pharisees had created that exposed what? Now you understand what Jesus is talking about when he says, Divorce illustrates the hardness of sin when we are willing to abandon the holy and intimate for the unholy and superficial. Why... Why would we say that we're willing to abandon the holy and intimate? It's, it's because in Ephesians chapter 5, when God chooses of all the relationships on earth, when he chooses the relationship to illustrate the, the kind of relationship that Jesus has with you, Jesus is the bridegroom, 
and you are the bride. And he uses the marriage relationship to signify what's holy and what's meant to be intimate. And whenever we're willing to flush that in order to get what we want and satiate our own superficial and sinful attitudes, we demonstrate once again the sinfulness of our heart. That's what Jesus is doing in this particular passage. Let me give you illustration number four. These are all, this is all from Jesus' sermon. We're just going a little slower, and I'm helping you see, this is what he was saying here. This is what he's saying here. Every one of these is from the Old Testament law, which he says, I came to fulfill. He says that half-truths and false oaths illustrate the selfishness of greed and our willingness to deceive with our words in order to gain what we want. The, the Pharisees had said, you can say whatever you want as long as you don't swear by God or swear by heaven or swear by the city of Jerusalem. You could say whatever you want. So if, if you ask me, uh, hey, uh, will you sell me this chariot for uh, uh, 30 denarii? And I say, yeah. And then later I come to pick it up and you go, oh, it's, uh, it's 52 denarii. And you say, what? And you say, well, you asked for the chariot, but the wheels cost an extra 12 denarii. I mean, that's, that's what they do for you down at the dealership too, isn't it, right? They say, oh, well, you want a steering wheel? Well, that's extra. So we use half-truths, false representations, lies. The Pharisees say, I didn't swear by it. It's a loophole. They, they, by the way, the Pharisees were also attorneys. How bad would it be that your pastor is also an attorney? That's a bad deal, isn't it? Sorry, attorneys. Um, so we are, we are willing to deceive, look for every loophole in order to gain what we want. And Jesus is illustrating this is every single heart. It's not just attorneys. Here, I've been doing this for years. I'll see if it works still to this day. How many of you have ever paid money to go to a conference or a seminar to learn how to lie. Can I see your hands? Yeah, 30 years, I've never had anybody say they've done that. Do you know why you never went to a conference or a seminar to learn how to lie? You already knew how to lie. In fact, some of you are really good at it. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that we go away from our mother's womb speaking lies. David writes that in the Psalms. Did you know that babies lie before they could ever use words? Did you know that? Uh, moms know this. Dads don't really know this, but moms know this. Babies have different kinds of cries. There's the I'm hungry cry. There's the, hey, somebody get this diaper off of me cry. There's the I'm lonely. Somebody pick me up and hold me cry. There's the I'm hurt cry. They're all different kinds of cries, and moms know the difference between them. Dads don't. So dads just go, hey, he's crying. I don't know. So, uh, so a mom puts a baby down for a nap. And the baby cries the, I'm lonely, pick me back up cry. Now, the mom knows that they're fed, they're not hungry, that they just changed the diaper, that they're not hurt. The mom knows all of that. So when the baby cries the, I'm lonely, pick me back up cry, the mom doesn't go in there. They let them cry, and the baby's going to cry themselves to sleep. But the baby wants to be picked up. So the baby cries the, has this ever happened to you moms? The baby cries the, I'm hurt cry. You rush into the room to see what happened, and when you go into the room, the baby goes, <laughs> What happened? 
they go away from the womb speaking lies. No one ever had to teach you to lie. And you and I have been most certainly at times and places in our lives willing to lie, misrepresent the truth in order to get what we want. And Jesus is illustrating the sinfulness of our hearts. Illustration number five is different than the others because illustration number five is not a reference to the Old Testament law, but the customs and the Roman laws that have been put upon the people. And uh, it, it says in this passage here, as you look at it about uh, these customs, he said, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say don't resist those who are evil. If one slaps you, turn the other cheek. If someone sues you for your tunic, give him your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. What's he talking about? Well, uh, the Romans had conquered the world. And so over all of the Roman world, they had stationed their military and their soldiers. And as, if, as in the case of all armies, some of those soldiers would get furlough. They would get R&R. And they would go back to their families or go to some place to visit. And they would travel with all their equipment. Now, the Roman centurion's equipment, the Roman soldier's equipment, he had a, he had a heavy metal helmet. He had, a, he had a breastplate that was metal. He had metal sheaths that came up on his legs. He's got his sword. He's got all this heavy stuff. It would be in what we would call today his duffel, his duffel bag. And he would be walking. And so... They passed a Roman law that any Roman soldier anywhere in the Roman world could conscript any civilian to carry his stuff for a mile. And it was considered fair because you carry my stuff for a mile and then you'd have only a mile to go back. But I could ask you to do it no matter what you were doing. You would have to stop and carry my stuff. And Jesus says, carry it two miles. Really? It would be like me saying, hey, whatever the IRS makes you pay this year, pay them twice as much. You would say, I don't think so. This is what Jesus is saying. This is why this is revolutionary thought. This is why everybody would have dropped their jaw and said, I'm going to carry the conqueror who conquered my land and made me a slave. I'm going to carry his stuff an extra mile. I don't even want to carry it one mile. So what is Jesus illustrating? Individual rights, that's what we're talking about, what I, what I have the right to do and not to do, illustrate the narcissism of personal importance and our unwillingness to subjugate our rights for eternal purposes. I, o- I only do what I have to do, and I have rights. Now, if there was ever an illustration that was applicable, applicable to a people, it's this illustration to the people of the United States. No civilization in the history of the earth has had uh, its people underneath its own government has had more personal rights than we do. We fight to protect our rights. We, we hurt the rights of the whole masses in order to lift the rights up of one or a tiny group. We believe in personal rights, and our belief in personal rights has become the altar at which we worship. So much so that we are unwilling to lay down our personal rights for the eternal work of the kingdom of God. God says, turn the other cheek. 
Somebody sues you, let them have what they sued for and give them some more. Somebody makes you go one mile, go with them too. Why would we do that? Because we care about eternal things. We're willing to lay down our rights for eternal things. And when we're not, it exposes the sinfulness of our hearts. One last illustration. The last illustration, he says, you've heard it taught, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, but I say to you. Why can Jesus say, but I say to you? Because Jesus is the one who wrote the law. So Jesus is the one who can interpret the law. And Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What's he doing in this last illustration? He's talking about relational prejudice. And relational prejudice illustrates the bigotry of our souls that love only those who love us back. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about racial prejudice necessarily. I'm talking about we're prejudiced against anybody who doesn't love us back. And so since we only love those who love us back, this combines with our sinful heart's unwillingness to see the true power of God's love. You see, we can change lives if we love people. We can change the world if we love people. We can love people to Christ, but we don't do it. Instead, we begin to develop our own little clique, our own little group, and this is the group that they like me and I like them, and I just hang out in this group. If you're not in the group, you kind of get pushed away. That's the prejudice of it. That's the bigotry of it, and Christians do this all the time. They have churches, and the church is just our little group. And so this reveals the guiltiness of our souls and the, and the unwillingness to do the very thing that God calls us to do, and that is to love this sinful world. In uh, 1984, uh, Jennifer Thompson was raped. A man uh, broke into her house, her apartment, uh, and he raped her. And by her own confession, she said the entire time that he was raping her, he st- she studied his face because she was going to make sure that he came to justice. She was going to be able to identify that guy. It turns out that uh, he raped a couple others uh, within that same week uh, within her apartment building. And uh, one day the police called her. It was about a year later. The police called her and they said, Uh, we've got somebody in a lineup we want you to look at. And Jennifer, by her own confession, says, I was ready for that. And she said, I picked the guy right out of the lineup. She said, I picked him right out of the lineup. She said, I knew who he was. Later, that was, sorry, that was a photographic lineup. And then later, in a live lineup, she picked him again. And then later in court, she testified, and she pointed to him, and she said, I'll never forget his face That's the guy. And Ronald Cotton served 10 years in prison for the rape of Jennifer Thompson, 1985 to 1995, when they started using DNA. And because there had been a couple other rapes, and they knew that they were all the same guy, they had DNA from those. And one day, Jennifer got a call from the police department that said, uh, we've done a DNA analysis, and the guy who raped you is this guy. 
and he's in prison for a different rape, and Ronald Cotton's not the guy. Ronald Cotton spent 10 years in prison for a rape that he didn't commit. Today, Ronald Cotton travels the United States with Jennifer Thompson. Speaking of the love and forgiveness that only God can give as he has forgiven her for what she thought was right, but she was wrong. And they demonstrate the power of the love of God and the power of the forgiveness of God. I want you to think about that just for a second. Because we live in a modern America, a modern America where people point the finger and say, you did this and you did that. And this can never be forgiven. And God's got a different kind of law. A law that he says in Romans is written on our hearts. We don't just have the law of Moses. We have it written on our hearts so that we can know and understand that God has a purpose. There's a reason that Christ came to fulfill the law. Now, why did he give the six illustrations? How does he fulfill that? Here's what I want you to see. Number one He gave them to us so that we would know there's no possible way that you're ever going to get into heaven by your own righteousness. You can't meet the requirements of the law. Neither can I. No one can. You can't stand to God before God and go, well, I never committed murder. I never committed adultery. You got to let me in. No, no, no. He's revealed that my unrighteousness, my sinfulness is a matter of the heart and it's far from God. And that's why Jesus came. He fulfilled every part of the law. Not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. He fulfilled the heart of the law. And that perfect man went to the cross to pay for your sins. And then he did this remarkable thing. He not only took your sins, but he gave you his righteousness. And this is the second part of the illustration. As a believer, you don't have to sin anymore. You have the Holy Spirit of God residing in you. You can win over your appetites. You can win over your anger. You can win over your bitterness. You can win over your falsehoods. You can win over fill in the blank because you have been given the Holy Spirit of God by the love of Jesus Christ who went to the cross for you. And in going to the cross, he fulfilled all of the Old Testament. Jesus could have given more than six illustrations, right? I mean, he could have given 20, he could have given 100 to illustrate the sinfulness of my heart. But he accomplished it with six. And he makes me realize I need Jesus. I need Jesus more than I need oxygen. I need Jesus more than I need food. I need Jesus more than I need shelter. I need his forgiveness. I need his righteousness. And without that, I'll never see God. Without that, I'll never see heaven. Without that, I'll never see forgiveness. Without that, I'll never see eternal life. But Jesus Christ did it for me. He did it for you. He loves you with an everlasting love. He cares about you. That's why he wants to to reveal your sin, so that you would turn to him, so that you would receive not only the forgiveness of sin, but the righteousness that makes you right with the Holy Father. That's why he preached this sermon. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed.
Is it possible that as we look at the words of Jesus' sermon, that they have touched you in your heart? Before this hour began, we prayed that whatever God would say to us, we would hear it with faith and courage, and we would be obedient to that. And is it possible this morning that as we were looking at the words of Jesus, you were, you were recognizing once again that God's done something for you remarkable. It's not like you could almost get to heaven and then God just got you the rest of the way. You are going to be separated from him for all eternity. Our hearts are so sinful. But Jesus Christ died for us. He died for you. And this morning, if you've never given your life to Christ, you can do that today. You could pray a simple prayer right there where you sit. Right now, prayer would go something like this. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I understand now that my sin has separated me from you. And so I'm asking you, because of your shed blood on the cross, to forgive me of my sin. Come into my life and give me your righteousness. And the best that I know how from this day forward, I'll live for you. If you prayed that prayer right there in the stillness of your own heart, but if you prayed it sincerely with all your heart, the Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus has heard your prayer. He's answered it. And that's the moment of salvation. You've moved from hell to heaven. You've moved from being separated to God to being called a child of God. And that's more important than anything else in this life. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. How many of you would just raise your hand and say, Paul, when you prayed that prayer out loud, I prayed it in my own soul. And you'd raise your hand. Yes, yes, God thank, uh, God bless you. Anyone else? Thank you. Most of you in this room have already prayed that prayer. Most of you in this room have already given your life to Christ. And what I would say to you this morning is, do you realize you don't have to sin anymore? You have the Holy Spirit of God in your life. And now everything's changed. You're a new new creation in Christ. You don't have to go through the Christian life and say, well, that's just who I am. I'm a sinner. No, you can start to win because the Holy Spirit of God is living in you because Jesus Christ has not only forgiven you, but he's put his righteousness in you. And how many of you who have given your life to Christ would say, Paul, pray for me. Today I want to rededicate myself to those things. Yes, God bless you. Yes, 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 God bless you. Father, you've seen our hands, you know our hearts, you know everything about us. And so we come to you this morning and I thank you for these who have prayed today and asked you to be their Lord and Savior for the very first time. Father, I thank you for these who have recommitted themselves to a new life in Christ. And we thank you for the power of this sermon. We thank you for Jesus who loves us so much that he would expose our sin that we might have his righteousness. And so, Father, we choose today to live in that righteousness. We choose today to live in the power of your Holy Spirit. We choose today to live as you have instructed us. And we pray that you would get all the glory and all the honor. For we pray it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said? Now we're coming to the, to the culmination of the Sermon on the Mount when we start chapter 6 next week. In chapter 6, verse 33, the key to the whole, the whole sermon says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you. Keep coming, and we're going to see all that God has for us. Have a great day. God bless you.
for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.